I hope that each of you had a wonderful celebration of our Lord's birth. Uh, just in our report this morning that I know I give every week on Emma, the Lord was continuing to do things that surprise us um, and that we are very thankful for. Um, Emma has started showing a little more movement in her legs that even a month ago was, were not there. Uh, was not there by turning, adjusting her feet and doing some things on command. So we just, as I've said before, ask you to continue to pray and to thank God for the small things in everything because God is at work. God is indeed. I want to direct your attention again to Matthew chapter 2. We started preaching through, or I started preaching through, and hopefully you are with me in this process, of the gospel of Matthew chapter 2 and thinking about the Christmas season. And as we come to the conclusion of this year, we're going to be focusing on a text that in many ways is very difficult because it deals with suffering. Not just suffering, but it's a passage of Scripture known as the suffering of the innocents. I'm referring to what King Herod had done in the aftermath of the wise men leaving. So I direct your attention to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 16 through 23. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. But when Herod died. Behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying. Rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for being gracious and good to us. We ask you this morning to help us, Father, as we wrestle with this very difficult question of evil. As we struggle with suffering, Lord, guide us. Each of us in here have been impacted in some way by things that have gone wrong, by, whether it be by the actions of others or illnesses that have occurred. And Father, those times can make us doubt your goodness. They can cause us to question who you are. So we ask you, Lord, to help us. We ask you, Lord, to incline our hearts unto yourself. That we would seek you and trust you. And rest assured in your promises. For it is in the name of Jesus that I pray. 
Amen. The question has been a perennial one. Why do the righteous suffer? It's a question that is age old. Even when you read the Psalms, the psalmist asks, Lord, why do the evil prosper? And why do the righteous seem to suffer even more? It's a question we can't escape from. As much as we would like to insulate ourselves from the evil that happens in this world, we can't. Even this morning, news reports were telling of a a stabbing that took place in an apartment in New York where a man broke into a family celebrating Hanukkah and stabbed five of the members of the family. No rhyme or reason has been discerned as to motive yet. Usually when theologians or philosophers talk about evil, they divide it into two broad categories. One's often referred to as natural evil. That's the disasters that occur, the uh, tsunamis, the hurricanes, the tornadoes. Also clumped under that category would be the illnesses that you and I suffer from, loved ones suffer from, sicknesses, diseases that happen to us all. The other category is that called moral evil. That's evil that's perpetuated by uh, one person upon another. That's the evil that's described here in Matthew chapter 2. There are some that question if this event ever took place. Historical records of the time don't record any massacre of the innocents. However, I believe that this did occur, one, because the scripture records it, and second, because this action is in accord with what we know of Herod. Herod was so ruthless to keep power that even had members of his own family murdered. It was said that he was afraid that when he died, no one would grieve his death. So he had left orders that upon his death, one member of every family was to be killed so that people would be grieving when he died. This was a man that was horrible. Some feel that it was overlooked because Bethlehem was a very, very small place. Some archaeologists and scholars estimate that when it speaks of the children being killed, it was maybe 10 to 15 children. So it wouldn't be really a, a large scale thing. But however, I want to be clear. One is too many. Far too many. See, one of the great lies that Satan wants us to believe is that sin only affects us. That what we do is, is private. It has no impact on the people around us. And that simply is not true. There is no sin in our lives that does not have an impact. Ripples that affect those around us. We are not in isolation. And our actions affect others. Even when it is not intended to. Or even when it is malicious as what Herod did here. I think it's important to keep the point, the reason that this is recorded in the text in front of us. Matthew says it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
Now it's interesting when you read back in Jeremiah 31, that's not necessarily a prophecy as much as it is a statement of what was occurring. Now, if you will bear with me, we need to have a little bit of a, a biblical history lesson to understand what was taking place and what was so significant about this town of Ramah. Jeremiah prophesied when the empire of Babylon had come and had overtaken Judah. And part of the Babylonian policy when it came to the capturing of enemy nations was to take a portion of the population, the brightest, the best, those that were promising, to, and remove them from their families and take them, in Judah's case, over 800 miles away so that these teenagers, these children, would be raised as Babylonians. And Ramah was the northernmost point of Israel. It was the place where families would be separated. It was the place where children would be taken from their mothers by soldiers. It was the place where goodbyes were said with the idea they would never see one another again. The scene would be tragic. That's why there was weeping. This fear that these children are being taken away and being removed that they would never ever be seen again. But it's important to remember that Matthew includes this for a reason. I think the fulfillment of this passage goes far beyond just the grief. The reason I say that is because Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope. It's a hope that expands the fact that God is not done with His people. That God is working even in the midst of suffering. If you will, if you have your Bible still open, or even if you don't, open them now. And turn back to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. This chapter is one of hope. It's one that focuses on the truth that God is not done with His people and He will be at work turning mourning and grief into joy, into happiness. In fact, I would draw your attention, verse 15 is the only verse in this chapter expressing sadness. This voice is heard in Ramah weeping and lamenting. But notice what happens immediately after it in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future and your children shall come back to their own country. In the midst of grieving, God says this grief, this weeping, this lamenting is not the end of the story. There will be a reconciliation. There will be a return. Hope in that. And it's interesting that where this chapter ends up is with the promise of a new covenant. That God is not done with His people even though they had rejected Him. Even though they had acted as the unfaithful wife, God says, I will make a new covenant with you. A new covenant where you will know me and each one shall walk with me. In the context of grief, there is this ray of light that says the hope is that God is not done with us. It's also interesting to me that it's, it's as if Matthew bookends this promise from Jeremiah in his gospel. Here in Matthew 2, you see where he says this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, this weeping and this grief. 
at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And when he gives them the cup during that last supper, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. He ties in his sacrificial death with the hope that God is not done with his people. We are waiting for the day when evil will be destroyed completely. We live in that in-between time. Jesus has staked out his claim. He is Lord. He is Messiah. He is waiting for the day when he will return and death will be conquered. Theologian Oscar Coleman described it like this. On June 6th of 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beaches at Normandy. The Allied as well as the German forces knew that if the Allied troops gained a beachhead, the war was pretty much over. And even though the Allies won the day at Normandy, did the Germans automatically stop fighting? No. There were still battles fought. And even German victories, as was celebrated, or not celebrated, but remembered at the Battle of the Bulge 75 years ago. Jesus has come and he has established the beachhead. The victory is sure. But there are still battles. Evil still rears its ugly head. So what are we to do? One, we don't give up. It's interesting to me that in many ways stoic philosophy has made a resurgence in our culture. That idea of no matter what fate throws at you, you just be tough. It's captured in a movie made in the year 2000, Gladiator, when the main character said, Death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. That's not the gospel. The gospel says we can rejoice and have a hope even in the face of death. So let's remember just a few things in the face of evil. The first is this. The Bible nowhere teaches the doctrine of karma. Nowhere. We like to think in our minds, if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. That's not the case. In fact, in many ways, Jesus said the opposite was actually true. That those who seek to live righteously may indeed suffer more. None of us are exempt from, from certainly natural evil and even moral evil. The decisions of others, for good or ill, impact us. So since we don't just resign, resign ourselves to say, well, evil just is. We are called to live victoriously in hope. What do we do? Well, we remember this. We remember that God is at work in all things. We don't limit the sovereignty of God. We recognize that He is at work even when we do not see how. We can't say, well, God is sovereign. Then when it comes to the issue of evil, say, well, he's not. But we have faith. And our faith is not based on a blind shot in the dark. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps, well, not perhaps, but the worst evil ever committed as the Son of God was crucified. It looked lost. 
But yet the resurrection occurs three days later to tell us that even when things seem the darkest, God is at work. He has a purpose. Now, a lot of times we think, well, if I can just see the purpose, that will sustain me through it. But I've come to realize this. Even if we knew the purpose, it would be easy to sit back and say, but you are God. You could have worked things in a different way. That's where we must trust God even when we do not see his purpose. Because even if you and I do not discern the purpose of God, it doesn't mean there's not one. I've not done a whole lot of camping in my life. I've camped vicariously through reading about it with other people, which may be the best way to camp. But I understand that there's a little bug. It's actually called a no Guess why it's called a no It's less than a millimeter long. You may look in your tent and you don't see it. You don't see the no Makes sense. But it doesn't mean it's not there. If I were to say, be careful when you go into a, your tent, there's a St. Bernard. You could look in and see the St. Bernard very clearly. You'd be aware of it. It's just as much there as the noceum may be. Just because we can't discern the purpose of God doesn't mean there's not one. We need to remember that. And we need to resolve ourselves to say, you know what, Lord? My job is to serve you no matter what. A theologian who has cast a very large shadow upon this world is the theologian John Calvin. Now, whether you agree with his theology or not, that's a debate for another time. But there's no doubt that he did cast a large shadow upon this world. He died when he was 54 years old. And he maintained a preaching schedule that was amazing. Every Sunday, he preached two times. Every other week, he preached every day. And these were not short sermons. If you think I'm long-winded, you hadn't seen or heard nothing. We're talking hour and a half, two-hour expository sermon. On top of that, he wrote prolifically. He ministered to his congregation. And he did this while suffering a malady of a whole host of maladies. Now, I want to warn you, if you're one of these people that when you hear of other people's illnesses, you begin to empathize and have sympathy pains, you may want to cover your ears. John Calvin lived his life suffering from painful stomach cramps, intestinal influenza, and recurring migraines. He was subject to persistent onslaught of fevers that would often lay him up for weeks at a time. He had problems with his trachea in addition to pleurisy, gout, and colic. He suffered from hemorrhoids that were often aggravated by an internal abscess that would not heal. He had arthritis and acute pain in his knees, calves, and feet. He suffered from nephritis, which is the acute chronic inflammation of the kidney caused by infection as well as gallstones and kidney stones. It said and written in his journal, he once passed a kidney, so, kidney stone so large it tore the urinary canal and led to excessive bleeding. He would strain his voice in preaching so severely that he experienced violent fits of coughing where in one he broke a blood vessel in his lungs and hemorrhaged. At the age of 51, he was diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis, which ultimately proved fatal. He had all that while he still preached twice on Sundays and then 
every other week, every day, as well as writing. The last three years of his life, he was spent in bed. He wrote a final letter to his best friend, William Farrell. You'll see a quote from it upon the screen. That's Calvin at top, his friend Farrell at the bottom, even though they look like twins or they're from Duck Dynasty. Calvin said this to his best friend. Since it is God's will that you should outlive me, remember our friendship. It was useful to God's church and its fruits await us in heaven. I do not want you to tire yourself on my account. I draw my breath with difficulty and expect each moment to breathe my last. It is enough that I live and die for Christ, who is to all his followers a gain both in life and in death. The attitude that says, I will be obedient. Good or bad. Serenity or suffering. My call is to be faithful to where God has called me. But part of our faithfulness is knowing we are not alone. You see, that's where Christianity differs from all other religions or philosophies. Our God is not distant from our suffering. In fact, look at the text. Notice when verse 19 begins. But when Herod died. That's a turn. Herod dies. An angel appears to Joseph. It's time to go home. So Joseph gets up. He goes back home. But verse 22, there's another problem. He hears that Archelaus is reigning over Judea in place of his father. So he's afraid to go back to Judea. So he goes to Galilee being warned in another dream. He went and lived in the city of Nazareth that was spoken by the prophet that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus end up in Nazareth. Now the interesting thing is in verse 23 Matthew says this was spoken to fulfill what the prophets said. There's no one prophecy saying Jesus would be a Nazarene. It's as if he took this, this group of prophecies and brought them together to say Jesus is going to be from Nazareth. Now, this is why I think that's important when it comes to the issue of suffering. Suffering can bring about a sense of alienation. No one understands. No one wants to have anything to do with me. I'm an outcast. I would remind you that Nazareth was that place people looked down upon. Remember in the Gospel of John, the disciples come to Jesus. They mention that there's the, not to Jesus, but to Philip. And say, look, the, the guy from Nazareth is here. And how does he respond? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The place was so disdained, they didn't believe anything could come out of there. You'd almost say, and I almost am scared to say this in, in a church service. It's as if coming from Nazareth made Jesus a redneck. Who wants to have anything to do with him? He enters into our suffering as one who experiences it to the utmost. Have you ever been at that point where you feel utterly forsaken by God? No one understands. No one cares. Hear the words of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a Savior who comes alongside us. And because He comes alongside us, we know we are never alone. He is at work. He is at work in our lives, strengthening us. So trust Him. I have no grand answers as to why evil and suffering happen. 
but I do believe it is working to the glory of God. I wanted to end this sermon in a way that preachers have been ridiculed for ending a sermon with a poem. Three points in a poem. But I hope this will be worth it. I believe it will be. It's a poem written by the man by the name of William Cooper. William Cowper. He was a contemporary of John Newton. And Cowper struggled with depression. I mean tremendous debilitating depression. He wrote about it. And he wrote a poem. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints. Anxious. Worried. Fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower.